Uh, g'day everyone, I'm Alex. I'm a second year student studying ancient history and English. Uh, and I'm going to be leading us uh, in reading the Bible. So um, turn with me in your Bibles or in your booklets to Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they, co- they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your, ance- your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Ah, so well done, Alex. You've got all those names. Uh, Genesis 15, it'd be great to have uh, the outline opened, uh, show you where we're going, and the passage uh, as well. Well, Genesis chapter 15, the 15th chapter of the Bible introduces one of the most important and central concepts in the whole of the Bible. How can bad people please a good God? Intuitively, that seems a no-brainer. We, we can't, can we? If we're bad people, how can we please a good God, a God who cares about goodness? And that's the assumption of every religion in the world, that bad people can't please a good God. But that conclusion depends a little bit on how you see God's relationship to this world. 
If God is an observer, if God is sitting up in heaven just watching us, watching you, watching your behaviour as the judge, a passive, uh, a, a distant person just watching, then what pleases God? Well, obviously you've got to perform well, don't you? He's assessing you, he's making up his mind, he sets the bar reasonably high and he says, can you jump over it? And that is not completely off track with the true and living God. He does see all our evil thoughts, our intentions, our actions. He sees the way in which we hurt people and harm victims and he cares about them. Yes, God does watch. But what if God is not just an observer, but a player? What if God has plans for our world? He's working towards a solution to fix this mess. What difference would that make? See, with your lecturers, some of them come across as simply teachers and examiners, don't they? That's all they are. They want to see how well you can learn the stuff they give you and they can mark you on it. But what if your lecturer had a plan to solve COVID-19? They were working on something that would make a difference to the whole world. What would they want from you then? What would please them? I think there'd be some different answers. If God is like that, if he has a plan for the world, then what would please him? Not just being a good student. It opens up other possibilities, not just being well behaved, but maybe aligning myself with where he's going and what he's doing. Well, Genesis chapter 12 sets in motion our understanding of this plan of God. In, uh, and we've seen in chapter 12 to 14 over the last couple of weeks that God is a player. He's a, the player, in fact, in determining the destiny of planet Earth. The backstory, Genesis 1 to 11, we see that despite God starting everything well, it all goes wrong. Adam and Eve, the first humans, decide that they want to be God. They de-God God so they can stand in his place and everything goes from bad to worse. By Genesis chapter 6, God observes humanity and says the inclination of every heart all the time is only evil. That's a pretty big indictment, isn't it? Genesis chapter 11, humans band together. We can do one thing at least. We can cooperate with each other to do what? To push God out of the world and create our own paradise without him. Create heaven on earth. And God says, no way. God brings a curse on the earth. He curses our lives with difficulty and pain. That's almost the word for Genesis 3 to 11 is curse. There's no hope. And then out of the blue... God makes some promises. This random guy, Abram, and his promises are about blessing. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. He makes these promises to bless. This is my way of just drawing a picture of it. I'm an engineer. I like pictures. You might not. Go with me. At the core is God blessing. Instead of cursing, he's reversing that and bringing blessing. The blessing of relationship between God and Abram and his descendants, where he will be his God and they will be his people, protects them. And he's going to provide for them offspring. One man and his little family will become a great nation. And they'll have their own land, secure and safe, a place to live. And in these promises... God makes clear his long-term strategy for fixing this mess. That's really what it is. These aren't just random promises. 
These are a strategy, God's action to fix the world. But at first glance, you look at that and you probably think, I don't like the plan very much. I mean, I'm sure you could come up with something better, couldn't you? Imagine you're doing a group project, you know, one of these Mickey Mouse subjects you have to do at UWA, and, and when you open the email, it says, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to fix the whole world. Okay, five of you, you're going to do it. What would you come up with? Well, you might say, what we need is sort of an international parliament, you know, where we can debate all the things that affect all of humanity and make some really good decisions and we'll put everything right. Something, we could call it the United Nations. Or maybe you'd say, what we really need is to fix global warming. If we just fix that, everything would be right, wouldn't it? Or maybe a vaccine for COVID-19, then everything would be okay. But it wasn't before January, was it? Or maybe you think education would do it. If we just get, give everybody a university education, then all the problems of the world would go away. Of yours? Or mine? Yeah, you might not think much of God's, but I suspect he doesn't think much of yours either. Well, let's have a closer look. What he says is, I'm choosing you, and from your family, I'm going to make a great nation. Lots of kids, and I'll give them a place to live. But the big clue that this is a bigger plan than just Abram and his family is a couple of things in the promises. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. And it finishes with, and all peoples on earth. See the scope of that? All peoples on earth. Australian Aborigines and Inuits, Singalese and Tamils, even Anglos like many of us are. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God's vision is big. And so this is my way of picturing it. The blessings that he promises to Abram, well, they will flow out to everybody and anybody in the whole world. It's a long-term project. They have to become a nation. That's going to take a little while. Give them a land. But it's a, it's a project. It's a plan for hope for the world. But you might ask, what blessing? What is the blessing that God is promising to give all the nations of the world? Is it to put an iPhone in every palm? Is it to give everybody university education? Is it simply to give them food and water so they can survive? Is it to give them their own block of land where their family can live in security? Is it to give them greatness and fame? Now, all of those things are sort of in these promises. But it's not clear what the blessing is. What is it that you and I really need? What will bless our lives and make them wonderful for every person on planet Earth? Well, that's the question in the air as we get to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we see the problems of Abraham, Abram, are met by the promises of God. If you were with us last week, we saw that uh, Abram had a little bit of a problem. His nephew Lot had been taken captive by these four powerful kings. And Abram does something courageous, surprising. He, He launches a commando raid on those four kings and it succeeds. But now, do you see what he's done? He's picked a fight with the four big dogs on the block. And he's feeling very vulnerable. And all the promises of God feel in jeopardy. And God steps in. And he says, don't be afraid, Abram. Now, when do you say to somebody, don't be afraid? Only when they're petrified, isn't it? Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I'll protect you. I'll be your very great reward. I'll provide for you. 
Your future is sure. I give you my word. How does Abram respond to that? Well, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And Eliezer will inherit me. And it says again, you've given me no children. You have given me no children. Abraham says, it's all very well, God, to give me your word. But you gave me your word before. You said, I'll have offspring, I'll have children. And I've got none. Zilch. Nada. And he looks at himself and he looks at Sarah, his wife, and he says, and it's not going to happen. I'm old. She's old. She's never had kids. This is not going to change. God, what's happened to your word? You give me your word, but your word is useless. And in fact, Abram's very name makes this worse. The, the word Abram, the, the, the name of Abram, later Abraham, means exalted father, a great father. Imagine you meet him at a party. Hi, I'm Tim. What's your name? Oh, my name's great father. Hi, oh, how many kids you got? None. None? Yeah, zilch, none, no kids at all. Who's playing a joke on you? The whole thing just makes it in his face every day. Thanks, God, for your nice words, but I want some action. And so what does God do? Well, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Abram, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir, a biological son of yours. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What does God do? Well, he gives him more words. Well, there's a little bit more to it now because he takes him outside and he shows him the stars and he says, have a count. And if you've ever been out where there's no cities and the moon uh, has already gone down and you look up at the sky, there are just millions of them up there, billions of them. Now, in a sense, it's just words, but there's a little bit more to it than that. It's not just random thing that God shows Abram because who, who cast those stars into the heavens? Who made them? The same one who's speaking. And then we're told in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, credited to him, Abram, as righteousness. Now, did you notice something weird about verse 6? It really stands out from the flow of the narrative. There's this story going on. Abram's talking, God's talking. They're having a nice little dialogue. And suddenly the writer, the narrator, zooms out. And it's sort of like he tells you what's going on within God's own heart, within God's own mind, something that normally we could never know. It's not just the story of events on earth. It's what's happening, if you like, in heaven. And in doing so, he makes us stop reading the story and take notice. He underlines it. He, he puts it in italics. He bolds it so that you and I will stop and think about it a little bit. Because the content of what this verse says is unexpected and extraordinary. And we're going to go and explore it for a little bit. Notice it says that God reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. He credited Abram with a righteous status or standing. And he uses an accounting term, a term that you might use. Anybody here doing accounting? We're in your zone. Okay. Yeah, yes. Anybody else? Yeah, we're in your zone. You can help us here. Because in accounting, you've got debits and credits, haven't you? And the idea is that Abram is in debit. 
You know, he's got that big red figure in front of his, his amount that, that he, he, he owns, his bank account. It's, it's negative something, negative big. And God comes along and credits him with a positive. He changes the negative, he credits him with, with something, so that now he's got a positive balance. He's gone from being unrighteous to righteous, because he's credited with righteousness. And that is pregnant with meaning and significance. See, if on this day in Abram's life he's credited with righteousness, it means that he wasn't actually righteous before that. He wasn't inherently righteous, and we've seen that in the earlier chapters. Abram is no shining light. He deceives uh, the Egyptians. He passes his wife off as his sister, does all sorts of stuff to manipulate and control things. He's culpable, guilty, and patently unrighteous. But God says, I make you righteous. Second thing to see is that God is the player here. He credits Abram with righteousness. He's the one who moves Abram's account, if you like, from debit to credit, from negative to positive. God is not a passive observer just saying, come on, Abram, let's see what you like. I'll weigh you up. God is an active player. He changes Abram's status. And what is changed? Well, it's not his wealth. But his relationship, his standing with God. Uh, This idea of being counted righteous, being justified is another way of saying it, comes out of law courts. It's the decision of the judge. The judge weighs up, are you guilty or, or innocent? To be justified is to be declared innocent. You haven't done anything wrong. What you did was right. Imagine you got a letter last week from the University of WA on official stationery. And it says that you've been accused of cheating in your exams on Exemplify. I presume that would create a little bit of stress, wouldn't it? Cheating. That probably means not only would your mark not count, but you'd be kicked out of university. All your hopes and dreams of the education, of the career, of the job, of the life you'd have, all gone because of this accusation of cheating. That's big, isn't it? To have a negative in your column at that point really will make a difference. And, and so after you go to the meeting that's been arranged where your case will be heard. And you get there and the chairperson of the meeting says, we've examined everything and we've decided that you are innocent. How would you feel? Boy, that would make a difference, wouldn't it? Innocent. I, I get my mark back. I get my uni degree back. I get my life back because of that decision, because you are justified. That's the idea. But notice here, it's not that Abram is innocent and they simply declare what's true. There's a bit of creative accounting going on here. God doesn't recognise Abraham's true state. He changes Abram's state. As a gift, he gives them this status of being righteous, of being justified. Changes his relationship with God himself. What he's saying is that, Abram, you please me now. A bad person can please a good God. That seems weird, though, doesn't it? And another weird thing is the timing of it. See, where would you expect the verdict by God on somebody's life to be given? Well, surely you've got to wait to the end, don't you? Put away to the end of their life because you don't know what you'll do tomorrow, what they'll do the next year or the, the next decade. 
You can't give your verdict till you get to the end of your life. But God gives his verdict on Abram this day well before the end of his life, in the middle of his life. He moves him from the debit column to the credit column permanently. Because if Abram didn't earn that, that status, he can't unearn it. If it's contrary to fact, then facts won't change the verdict. From that day on, Abram can be confident that he's justified. That the righteous God has credited to him a righteousness that he still has, despite his obvious unrighteousness, despite his obvious guilt and shame. Well, what triggered it? Why did God do that? Well, we're told it was because Abram believed God. Or more literally, Abram trusted the Lord. He heard the promise of God. You will have a child of your own and your offspring will be as, as, as many as the stars of the sky. And Abram looked at himself, frail old man and his walking stick that he is, and he looked at his wife and she's never had kids and she's too old to have kids, way, way beyond it. And he listened to God's promise. You will have a child and your children will have lots of children. They'll become a huge nation. And you have to weigh up, which will I believe? Will I believe what I think is the future, looking at my own body? Or will I believe what God says, the creator of heavens and earth? Which one will I believe? And he chose to believe God. Now, does God say, Abram, your faith is so brilliant, I can't help but reward you. Your faith is so firm, so rock solid, so perfect. You've got faith without any doubt. That's so impressive. No, Abraham's faith is full of doubt. And we've seen it in verses uh, 2 and 3, uh, but come straight afterwards, verse 7. God says to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur. I'm going to give you this land. What does Abraham do? He say, oh, great, I've got that. Relaxed, of course. No, Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of the land? He's full of doubts and uncertainties. Now, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith in God is is faith in something else than God. For example, what he thinks will happen to his own body and his wife. Can they have children? Some things say to him, no. Will he go with that? Or will, with his doubts, will he believe God and his promise? He has his doubts. His doubts remain throughout his life. And yet, he makes a choice. There's a binary choice to make, and he makes it with his doubts, to trust the word of God. Verse 6, I hope you see, is seriously weird. It's a a crazy verse, but it's a significant verse. This is how a bad person can please a good God. And I want to zoom out for a little bit and just look at the bigger picture here. Remember back in Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abram. And he gave you some concrete expressions of what that blessing would look like. They'll become a nation with their own land. They'll feel secure. He'll make him great. He'll achieve something of real significance. But underneath all that and behind all that is the promise of a relationship between God and this imperfect man, that he will be his protector. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. I'm on your side, Abram. You and I are good. And in chapter 15, we see how that comes about. It comes about by justification, 
by being counted righteous. That is the, the core blessing, the very foundational blessing that God is giving Abraham. And he's giving it as a complete gift is to make Abram righteous with him. So Abram is good with God, accepted by God. Because if you're justified, if God justifies you, then ultimately you are safe and secure forever. If you're condemned by God, all the other blessings go out the window. All the other blessings become impossible. impossible. But if you're justified, then all the other blessings begin to flow. And it happens by faith in God. That is, the response God is looking for in us is faith, for us to trust him and his promises. Because God is not merely an impartial, passive observer. He's a player in our world. He's at work, he's on the move, he's got plans and purposes that are revealed in his promises. So what's the right response to God? Is it to try really hard to be good? Well, that's not a bad thing to do, but it's not the core response. So imagine my car has got a few problems and you being very a skillful mechanic, if anybody here is, imagine you promise, Tim, I'll come round on Saturday and I'll fix your car. What sort of response are you wanting from me? Imagine I go home, I spend two days on the internet working out every way I can try and fix my car and then I spend two days, two whole days, trying to fix my car. Failure, probably, but, but I'm trying. How do you feel? Well, you might be a bit relieved you don't have to do it, although there's now a bigger mess to fix. But I presume what you'll say to me is, Tim, didn't you trust me? Didn't you think I'd come? Didn't you think I could do it? See, when somebody makes a promise, when somebody's a player, when somebody's doing it, then the right response is to trust. And when you trust someone and their promise, it's a relational thing. So if it's just about morality, I can do morality with no relationship. I can just be a good person, make sure I never do anything wrong. But when you speak to me and you make promises to me, that creates the opportunity for a real personal relationship. And at the heart of every human relationship and our relationship with God is trust. If there's no trust, there's no relationship, is there? If your parents don't trust you, you don't trust them, it's all destroyed. If there's no trust in the relationship with your friends, there's sort of nothing, is there? What is it that God wants? Trust. Because trust is an expression. Trust is what builds real relationship. God makes a promise to us. A promise of forgiveness. A promise of justification. And what response does he want? Trust. Faith. Not necessarily perfect faith. With doubts, yes, but faith. And you might say, well, that's all very well for Adam, but, but Abraham, but what about us? Well, verse 6 points forward to us, to the way in which God blesses us in Jesus. So if you wind forward about 2,000 years to the, the, the year about 55 AD, the Apostle Paul writes to some Gentile Christians. They're, they're not part of Abraham's family. Uh, they're completely outside that. And he writes them explaining the connection between Abram and us. And he says that the link is Jesus. Galatians 3, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That is not just those who have the blood of Abraham, the genetics, but who have faith like Abraham. 
Because scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. Remember that promise, all nations will be blessed through you? Well, that was the gospel in advance. He was looking forward to Jesus. So those who rely on faith, those who are from faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See what he's saying? God's promise to bless all the nations of the world. What was the blessing that God had in mind for the Aborigines and the Inuit and the, the, the Tamil? It's the blessing of justification. The blessing of people being given a righteousness that is not theirs. It's alien and yet it's given as a gift. In Genesis 15, God credited that righteousness to Abram. That's the foundational blessing and that's the blessing that comes to us. It's the same blessing as sure as the one that went to Abraham. To those who have faith. But faith now in what? Well, he goes on to say in verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Has written curses everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That is, there's two different things you can put your trust in. You can put your trust in God and his promises or your your own works. You can try and establish your own righteous status by what you do or you can trust God who reckons unrighteous people as righteous. And, And those two things, says Paul, are mutually exclusive. And what happens if you take this route? You try and do it by your own works. You trust yourself to get a righteous standing. It is a failure. Because you try and keep the law and you can't keep it. And the law curses you. So you're under a curse. There's no blessing there. There's only ever curse. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. As it's written. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. The curse that you and I deserve was born by Jesus when he died on the cross. He paid our debt. That's how God does the creative accounting. How he he can credit bad people with righteousness. How he can satisfy his own commitment to justice and even the cry of the victim for justice. Because he didn't just pass over what we'd done. He didn't just do a bit of creative accounting uh, accountable to no one. No, he himself paid the price. So what do we have faith in? In Christ, who was cursed for us, who died, who suffered the pain of rejection and the shame of humiliation in our place. And therefore in God's promise that those who call on Jesus to save them will be saved. Those who trust in Jesus will be justified. Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified that day. Simple, instant. What about you? Are you justified yet? Have you been credited with righteousness? All it takes is to trust Jesus, to, in a sense, make that very simple decision. To say, what Jesus did is what I'm counting on, not what I am and what I do. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say on the 11th of August 2020, Jack believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Joan believed God and it was credited to her as righteousness. Because that can happen. If you're not sure, all you need to do is trust Jesus and what he's done and your whole status changes now, today. The 11th of August, 
2020. Is that what you want? This is the greatest blessing that can come into your life, to be right with God. And it's offered to you as a gift. He's done it all. He offers it to you. Will you accept it? Have you accepted it? If you're not quite sure what to do, talk to a Christian friend afterwards. I'm sure they can help you. And in the rest of chapter 15, God signs off on his promises to Abram. Abram says in verse 8, how can I know you'll give me the land? And what does God do? Well, he, he does the ancient equivalent of drawing up a legal contract with all the lawyers present and signing it himself. It's a bit of a complicated process. It involves a cow and a goat and a ram and a dove and a pigeon. And they cut some in half and create this little pathway. And God walks down the middle of the pathway. Now, we're not quite sure what all the cultural background is, but two things are pretty clear. One is God is making sure that Abram understands that this is solemn, this is serious. And there's a sort of suggestion that as he walks down between the the halves of the carcasses, God is sort of saying, if I don't keep my word, may this happen to me. But notice only God walks between the animals. (laughs) He's the only one who does the walk. Abram doesn't, because this promise is all one-sided. It's unilateral. God makes the commitment. God makes the promise. All Abram is called to do is trust, is to believe. This is God's covenant. He cuts a covenant with Abram, just like God has cut a covenant with us, signed with the blood of Jesus. And the logic of faith, what will give Abram confidence? What will give him assurance that God's promises will come to be? Well, notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, Abram, if you have a little bit more faith, I'll look after you. If you can just look inside yourself and dredge up a little bit more belief and somehow push those doubts aside, and then I'll look at you and say, yeah, you're worthy. I'll I'll give it to you. I'll I'll look after you. No, that's, that's not the way it works. Instead, God says, I will do it. Take me at my word. I am committed That will give you courage. That will give you confidence. Just like Paul says in Romans 8. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see the logic of that, don't you? He doesn't say find a bit more faith inside you. He says look at what Christ did for you. Doesn't that convince you deeply, permanently, that I am for you? I will bless you. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn us then? No one can. Because Jesus Christ died and was raised to life, interceding for us. Nothing can condemn us if we're trusting in Jesus. That's the logic of faith. Well, are you feeling justified? If you are a Christian, somebody whose faith is in Jesus, do you feel righteous before before God? If, like me, you're very aware of your unrighteousness, and you think back yesterday, in my, my total inadequacy, the, the ways I stuffed it in, in my thoughts, in, in my motives, I don't always show it in my actions, but even in my actions, I'm very aware that I'm not righteous. My conscience keeps bugging me. There, there's the guilt, there's the shame, there's the things I'm glad you don't know about. I don't feel justified. I don't feel righteous and clean, especially before God. But God says to me, Tim, I have justified you. I've given my verdict already. 
I'm not waiting to see what happens tomorrow or next week or, or the next decade. I've already given my verdict on you. You are right with me. But I feel so unright, so unrighteous, so vulnerable, so guilty. Now, which of those is more real? Obviously, this one, isn't it? How I feel is more real. It's, it's, it's immediate. It's, it's me. It, it, it's what I'm experiencing. That, that feels so real. But actually, in the long run, it isn't, is it? Because in eternity, which will determine my destiny? God's objective, distant, so-called verdict about me, or my own feelings, my subjective, those, those things that are so close and immediate. It's going to be this, isn't it? Which determines how God relates to me today? Is it how I feel or his verdict on me? It's this one, isn't it? This one might affect how I relate to God, but this is what determines how God relates to me when I pray to him, when I need his protection, when I'm feeling vulnerable. Yeah, how I feel does affect how I relate, but not what really matters. And the Christian life, in one sense, is a long road of living with this tension between what God says about me and how I feel. But under God, a gradual convergence, because... As I come to understand and believe and be persuaded of this more and more, so my feelings start to change. So I start to feel righteous with my doubts, with my unrighteousness. I know we're told to trust your feelings, but I I want to push back a little and say, no, don't trust your feelings. Trust God's word. See yourself as God sees you. And as you do that, your feelings will wonderfully, gradually change. How can bad people please a good God? Only if God justifies them, credits them as righteous. And in Christ, he has.